Hello, good evening, and welcome back to our Bible studies. And it's really important um, to continue this wonderful topic of revival. And I thank you, for those of you who've engaged with me on this. And it is so important, and to be seeing what we have been seeing, the importance of prayer underpinning revival. But now we come to preaching, because we've been focusing on the most important precondition and precursor revival, the urgent, repentant, persistent, pleading prayers to the people of God, that the Lord would once again rend the heavens and come down. When God is pleased, however, to answer that prayer and to usher and bring in widespread and sustained revival, he does it invariably through the means that he, almighty God, has ordained in the Holy Scriptures. And in particular, he will do it through the means of the preaching of the Word of God. And that pattern is not difficult for us to see in the revivals that we see in the Bible itself. Think of Jonah. Think of his solemn preaching of coming judgment to the pagan city of Nineveh. Jonah 3 verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city during a day's journey and he called out, and this is his sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of, God, of Nineveh believed God in verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah. I think of Ezra, the preaching of Ezra the scribe in Nehemiah 8. He read from the book of the law. He gave the sense, he expounded the first five books of Moses so the people could understand from morning till night. You may think that my sermons are long. And then Nehemiah tells us that in the wake of the preaching of the word, the congregation was overwhelmed with a sense of profound conviction of sin. Or think about, you know, a little more closer to our recent series, the revival in John 4 in Samaria, where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. She led, he led the woman at the well, the woman of John 4, to faith in him. And she went immediately and reported to her neighbours in the town. And they came, and they came en masse to hear Jesus for themselves. They begged him to remain behind. Many believed his message. And in John 4, verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. Peter's preaching, Acts 2. Remember our journey through Acts recently on Lord's Day mornings. Peter's preaching at the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. The great assembly listened to Peter preaching Christ, and they were cut to the heart, and they cried out, What must, what must we do to be saved? And as Peter applied the gospel to them, 3,000 were added to the church that very day. Paul, when he preached at Corinth, reminded them, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and in power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Likewise, at Thessalonica, he could remind them, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The scriptures demonstrate that when revival comes, it comes in the same way that new life comes into the human heart. And last in spiritual growth and renewal comes to the church. It comes through the ordinary primary means of the proclamation of the word of God and in particular of the gospel. And one of the places that makes the connection for us between preaching and spiritual renewal is our passage tonight 
Isaiah 52, 7-12. The theme of preaching stands clearly in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace and so on. That is the theme of preaching. But what will this preaching produce? What will its effects and its results be when it is attended by the blessing of heaven and the demonstration of the spirit of God and power? Well, two things are highlighted. In verses 8 to 10, gospel preaching, blessed by God, produces praise. It makes the heart sing for joy at the gospel. The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. Preaching leads to praise. And then in verses 11 to 12, gospel preaching, blessed by God, produces purity, holiness, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Let's pray before we read God's word together. Oh God, would you open our hearts right now? We don't just want to learn about preaching that is blessed by your spirit. We want to be blessed by your Holy Spirit. So please pour out the Holy Spirit anew to bring us conviction, to illuminate our understanding, to to lend conviction, force and power to the word for jesus sake we ask it amen so let's read the word of god together that's isaiah 52 verse 11 to 12 isaiah 52 and i'll read from the word of god How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem the Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God depart depart go out from there touch no unclean thing go out from the midst of her purify yourselves you who bear the vessels of the Lord for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard may the Lord bless the word Robert Murray McShane, I have spoken about him before, you probably know him, was called to be the minister at St. Pete's, St. Peter's in Dundee, when it was new in 1836. And when Robert Murray McShane arrived, he found the parish to be in a poor condition spiritually. And for the next two years, he preached and visited and evangelised incessantly for the salvation of sinners. And the Lord blessed his work, the church grew, but revival for which McShane prayed and longed, never came. And eventually overwork and disease compelled him to take a break. And during his absence, he arranged for a young man to preach in the pulpit, to preach the gospel by, he's called William Chalmers Burns in in St. Pete's pulpit. And not long after, Robert Murray McShane stepped away from the pulpit and, and William Burns preached, the revival for which McShane had longed and prayed for came. 
One historian says, at this time, Burns's preaching was noted for its great fullness, its freedom, and its rich scriptural content as he expounded the word and applied it with a melting and persuasive unction. A contemporary colleague of William Burns said that his preaching was distinguished for its zeal for the glory of Christ. I quote, I do not say he lacks the other motives to ministerial fidelity, but I do say that every other is with him subordinated to that noblest of all, the exaltation of Christ in the salvation of souls. That is what drove him. That was the burden of his preaching, the exaltation of Christ in the salvation of souls. And under preaching like that, revival spread rapidly throughout the city. Countless people were urged to seek Christ under conviction of sin. And they were led to that. And many found refuge in Christ. For his part, Burns' explanation of the extraordinary effectiveness of his preaching had to do in no small measure with McShane's labours before Burns arrived. In fact, Burns wrote to McShane to say to him that whatever fruitfulness had attended his preaching ministry in Dundee, as he ascribed no small part to McShane's sickbed prayers. McShane was pleading with God. Burns was preaching God, the word of God, and revival came. The point is that preaching that is full of Christ, zealous for the salvation of souls, preaching that is watered by the prayers the faithful prayers of the people of God is God's ordained means for the renewal and revival of the church. So first of all, the theme of preaching. The first six verses of Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 6, are predicting this coming salvation, a great reversal for the people of Judah, that they will be delivered eventually from Babylonian oppression and restored to the promised land. And in verse 7, Isaiah pictures the message of that coming deliverance arriving at the people of God, the news coming to them. And here, therefore, in the first place is the theme of preaching. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. A runner was sent to deliver the message. And in verse 8, the prophet imagines the watchmen stationed on the city walls, looking out from their posts and seeing the herald in the distance running toward the city, carrying the message. What is the news? They call down to him with anxiety, anxious to hear what he has to say. Is it good or bad news? Good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so the watchmen declare how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And when he says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him, the beauty of the message beautifies the message. The feet that carry these, the, 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 this news, the mouth that preaches this news, the person that brings this news is beautiful only because the news is glorious. Twice it is called good news. It is good, Isaiah says, because it is a message of peace and a message of salvation. God has acted for his people to establish his shalom, his peace. He has become their deliverer. Your God reigns. What has he done? How has he acted to bring this about? Upon what foundation has he secured his reign amongst them and overcome their oppression? 
Well, had, had the prophet ended his message at verse 12, we might have concluded that the salvation in view was nothing more than the liberation of the Jews from beneath the boot heel of their Babylonian overlords. The good news that the herald is bringing, we might have concluded, had only to do with their return from exile. But then we read verse 13, Isaiah 52, verse 13. He was, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up shall, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. Where does this peace come from? Suddenly the, now the full scope of the good news that Isaiah is thinking about becomes clearer. The runners approach the city walls and the watchmen are there waiting for the news. And what shall the runners call up to the watchmen? Good news! Peace secured! Victory won! Your God reigns! Because all, we all like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon his servant the iniquities of us all. That is what makes the good news good. That God has acted in the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified to secure liberation from bondage, not merely the bondage of a Babylonian oppressor, but liberation from the bondage of sin and death. Your God reigns, they say. And nowhere, nowhere do we see his sovereignty more clearly displayed than when he acted to give his people life by the death of his son. That is why Paul quotes this passage in Romans 10 in the context of his urging and promoting the need for gospel preaching. Romans 10 verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The good news is the message about Christ. This is God's way to life. God's mean of salvation. God's instrument of renewal and revival. The preaching of the good news. Peace, salvation, your God reigns because Jesus Christ was given for you. We often suppose that the engine that will drive church growth is some technique, some program, some fresh methodology that will revolutionise the way we do things and draw people in. Isaiah is reminding us, and this is so important, as, as church has been so disrupted in 2020 and already in 2021, that the hope for our hearts, the path for deliverance and peace the avenue open to the church for lasting revival and renewal is the straightforward proclamation of the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You do not need a silver bullet methodology. You do not need an inventive, creative, new visions or strategy. You need, and I need, Jesus Christ and him crucified, preached to our hearts, applied to our lives and received by faith alone. That is what we need, brothers and sisters. First of all, the theme of preaching. Secondly, gospel preaching leads to praise. Having laid that foundation, Isaiah wants to show us some of the implications of this 
gospel preaching? What will it do in the life of the people of God under the blessing of heaven? Well, first of all, it will, he says it will result in praise, verses 8 through 10. What will the watchmen do when they hear the good news? What is their response? They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. They are overcome with gladness. And that is what the gospel always ought to do in our hearts. Yes, there is a vital place for the conviction of sin. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. That is crucial. But in the end, the result of this good news, the gospel, is to make the hearts of grieving sinners rejoice, is to make our hearts glad. It is to help us sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And notice in verse eight, the reason for their joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. When we talk about, when we use that expression, when we talk about seeing eye to eye with someone, what do we mean? Well, we mean we have agreements. We share conclusions. We see things the same way. That isn't what the Hebrew idiom means. Here to see eye to eye means not so much interpersonal agreement, but clarity. That is the force of the expression. A, con a contemporary equivalent is better something like 2020 vision. That is the force of the expression. And what is it they see with 2020 vision? They see right on the heels of the message reaching their ears, the Lord himself is coming to Zion. It is the Lord coming back to Zion that they see. And that is why the preaching of the word is mighty. It has nothing to do with the skill of or the oratory or the rhetoric of the preacher but in the preaching of the gospel through the mysterious work of the holy spirit the lord himself comes to zion that's why i'm just so keen as, as as your minister as your pastor to 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 speak about the importance of gathering together because something spiritual happens which electronically we cannot do jesus comes to us how shall they believe in whom in him whom they have never heard? Not, not about whom they have never heard. That is how our English translation puts it. But the Greek says, how shall they believe him whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear unless someone preaches? In the preaching of the word you hear Christ. That's why a lot of ministers have it on their pulpit. I have it in my Bible. Sir, we would see Jesus. Christ comes to you. The Lord Jesus addresses you. Preaching is much more than the impartation of information understood like that. It is not just news. Rather, as we embrace the good news, we embrace Jesus. You have Jesus in the ministry of the word. No wonder their hearts rejoiced. And notice their fire spreads from their hearts to the hearts of the people. In verses 9 and 10, it is clearly infectious. Songs full of the theme of God's saving grace. Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The comfort of divine redemption, the holy arm of the Lord laid bare for you and your salvation what is the message salvation belongs to the lord it is his work from beginning to end the lord has done it 
and it is marvellous in our eyes. When we remind ourselves with the heralds running back to Zion in verse 7, your God reigns, this is what we are really saying. We mean that he presides over the redemption of men, women, boys and girls. He seeks and saves the lost. He gives life to dead sinners. He keeps them by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Of all those whom the Father has given to Christ, the Lord Jesus has lost none. You're in his hands. Your salvation secure in his sovereign keeping. He has laid bare his holy arm for you. No wonder they praise the Lord and so we ought to join them. Preaching leads to praise and thirdly, preaching leads to purity. Isaiah mentions purity as another result or consequence of this message arriving at the gates of Zion. Verses 11 and 12. The preaching of the gospel brings Christ to us. The Lord returns to Zion. So we praise him for his sovereign salvation. But the grace that saves demands action. We are passive slaves in bondage to sin. And then God breaks in and sets us free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been set free, we no longer remain passive. We have work to do. We have to get to work. So the prophet issues a divine summons in verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. It is an interesting exhortation. You would think the people would not really need it. After all, remember when they had been in bondage in Egypt, they were eager to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh. But now it seems that they've been in Babylon and while there have become rather assimilated. Perhaps they began to accommodate or compromise themselves to life in Babylon. Some of Babylon had begun to wear off on them and the prophet sees the need to exhort them to come apart, to leave Babylon and Babylonianism behind them forever. And notice the odd language at the end of verse 11. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. It is odd language, but Isaiah is talking about the priests and the Levites who carried the sacred implements for temple worship. And so he is saying, you must purify yourselves and be clean that you might be fit for the service of the Lord. Now, there are no longer Levitical priests, nor will there ever be again. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a kingdom priests to our God to declare the praise of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvellous light. We're the people of God and the priesthood, the royal priesthood, a holy nation. And therefore we are addressed here in this summons. And it is a call not just, for, to, not just to gratitude for what Christ has done, but new obedience resting upon Christ who has secured our deliverance. It is a call to the life of radical spiritual separation from the values and the behaviour of the world. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. So when we participate in the party scene where alcohol flows freely and drunkenness is an acceptable sin, when we curse and blaspheme without a second thought, when we trample the Sabbath day underfoot in pursuit of our own pleasures and the Bible is neglected, the Bible is neglected, the Bible is not open, but we binge watch perversity on Netflix for endless hours. What has happened? We've assimilated Babylon. We have forgotten that we've been redeemed by Christ to be a kingdom and priest to our God. 
We carry the sacred vessels. The name of the Lord, the praises of his glory are entrusted to us. Shall we handle such sacred things with filthy, unclean hands and wicked and guilty hearts? We need the call, I dare say, of this text to go out from the midst of her and purify ourselves. And as we close, just notice the two encouragements to purity in verse 12. First of all, negatively, Isaiah makes it clear there are no circumstantial excuses we can offer to justify accommodating ourselves to the values of the world. Verse 12, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight. You're going to leave Babylon, but you're not going to leave in a hurry. So you will not be able to claim that you could not help touching unclean things. That you had no chance to divest yourself of the prevailing culture in which you have immersed yourself. Alec Motia says, there will be no unwelcome pressure in the situation and nothing to distract the mind from calm commitment to walk with God in holiness. They will experience neither the panic flight of sinners under condemnation nor the opportunists escape of those whose master might change his mind, but rather every favourable circumstance. In other words, we cannot point to our circumstances and claim an excuse and say, I just can't help it. It's just the world we're living in. Everyone else does it. No excuses. You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. God will deal with us deliberately, carefully, in patience, affording us every opportunity to make progress and to depart from the ways of the world. And more wonderfully still, Notice positively all the resources of divine grace will be provided to help us walk in obedience and holiness. God does not call us to a purity he will not also help us to embrace. Look at the last clause of verse 12. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. What a precious promise, brothers and sisters. Here is a promise to plead before God's throne. Lord, you said you would go before me and you would back me up and fight for me. I need you now. I'm locked in a deadly struggle with besetting sin. Fulfill your promise. Here is the promise. He will be with you and he will defend you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His presence and power rests upon you. Holiness is our work, yours and mine. It is our work, but it is our work to be done in the strength of the grace of our great God. It is the recovery of these realities that define what we mean when we talk about revival. Do you see that? Grasping and experiencing the power of the preached gospel again, the joy that comes in the wake of the good news that we preach and the purity that ought to mark our lives as we leave Babylon behind because the gospel has had its way in our hearts. That is what happens when the Lord rends the heavens and comes down. Preaching that effects praise in our hearts, purity in our lives, that we may bear a distinctive difference and witness before the watching world. Brothers and sisters, it has been the burden of these messages. It is the burden of my heart to stir all of our hearts to seek the Lord that he might do exactly that again through the preaching of his word, even amongst us. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.